Heavenly Father, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look upon the heartfelt desires of your humble servants and stretch forth the strong hand of your majesty to be our defense against our enemies. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. All right, well, we are now on the other side of Easter and uh, confirmations, and um, we are beginning a new section of the Catechism, part four, Becoming Like Christ, which starts around page 89. Um, And this is where we're going to be talking about what it means to to live the Christian life or the, the moral life of the Christian faith. And we'll be, we're framing this in terms of becoming like Christ. So catechetical literature loves things that are easy to remember. Um, and so you'll recall that the different parts of the catechism are organized around different aspects of what it means to belong to Christ. So when we talked about the creed, we talked about believing in Christ, the creed as a sort of encapsulation of the thought life of Christianity, what it means to think Christianly, the life of the mind. Um, And then in talking about, when we talked about the Lord's Prayer as the sort of form and pattern of prayer, the Catechism frames that in terms of belonging to Christ. So the sort of What does it mean to be in union with Christ, to be joined with God? Prayer is the way in which God gives us his own language so that we can commune, that we can have fellowship with God, belonging to Christ. And then so now, in part four, we're turning to a third aspect of of this, becoming like Christ. What does it mean to live our lives in Christ-like shape? What does it mean to live like Christ? So there's thinking like Christ, uh, becoming or belonging to Christ, and then now this aspect of the moral life of Christianity. What does it mean to to live like Christ, um, to look like Christ in what we do and say and how we speak and act? This is also what will be called as... um, the doctrine of, of holiness or the doctrine of, of sanctification, sanctus meaning, meaning holy, and then facio meaning becoming holy. So this process of becoming like Christ in his holiness. And to do that, we are going to be walking through the different um, commandments in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, and we'll talk about uh, each one in particular. But today, we are are going to begin by just an overview and thinking about, well, what are these Ten Commandments, uh, or what are the commandments, and what is this notion of the law? What is the law, Uh, and how does that apply to Christians? Um, Whereas uh, the Apostles' Creed was formulated from the Bible, it was formulated in the early centuries of the church, the third, fourth centuries. The Lord's Prayer, as we discovered, was given to us by Christ, our, our Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but the Ten Commandments, as you're probably all aware, come from God's uh, 
revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, and so there's been lots of, plenty of, plenty of debate within the Christian tradition about, well, what is the ongoing place of the Ten Commandments in the Christian life? What is the function of the law in the Christian life? St. Paul obviously has lots to say about the relationship between law and gospel, or law and grace, um, and law and faith. And so this, is, this raises all sorts of questions about, well, what is the place of these commands, laws, um, precepts for living the moral life of Christ? Um, and so hopefully there should be plenty in here for you to get sufficiently upset about and uh, provoke some, some good questions and things like that. Um, but to begin, let's uh, turn to page 91, and we'll begin uh, with question 256, which is not a question, but fittingly a uh, request, a command, if you will. Uh, let's recite the Ten Commandments. Number one, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Two, you shall ha not make for yourself any idol. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and your mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet. So you'll, you'll notice the um, scripture references there, um, and we can, we'll get to this briefly later, but there's two places in the uh, Old Testament where we see versions of the Ten Commandments. One is in Exodus 20, and that's um, right after, right, telling the story right after um, the Israelites flee Egypt, and they're three months into their journey, and they've already, you know, uh, made, made a muck of things. And um, God, gives them the t God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the sort of, at the very end of their wanderings, Moses is giving this sort of, uh, you know, several-hour-long sermon. Uh, and he's sort of recapitulating uh, what's happened. And so he gives another version of there. Um, with slight differences in, particularly in the way that he talks about the Sabbath, um, but otherwise lots of, lots of similarities. Um, yeah, okay, let's keep going. Question 257. What are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law. So just to note here that it's um, not saying that the Ten Commandments are the law. It's saying here that the Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law. And we'll also hear in uh, a few questions, question 260, about Jesus summarizing the law. So we've got this unique relationship between what is written and this other category of law. Right, capital L, law. Um, and so this gets us at this, saying the Ten Commandments um, are not sort of exactly equivalent to God's law. They are a summary 
on the one hand, and an outline of God's law. So on the one hand, they're summarizing, right? They're taking this larger category and they're giving you the summary of God's law. Uh, and then the next word it uses, an outline of God's law. So it's giving you the shape, the scope. Uh, so a summary could distill things and just saying, here's you know, one or two, three, three or four things that you, you need to know about God's law. But in the, the, the use of this word outline, it's also saying that here's the, the broad scope. It's trying to encapsulate every, everything uh, one could say about God's law, but in a summary form. And this is just textbook what catechesis is. <laughs> catechesis is this summarizing and outlining these much broader, capacious, you know, all-encompassing aspects of the Christian life. So if the Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law, let's go to 258. What is God's law? God's law is God's direct pronouncement of his will, both for our good and for his glory. I left out the little parenthetical there, um, but that is uh, God's law is translating this Hebrew term, Torah. And so Torah specifically can be referred to as the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But on the other hand, Torah in the scriptures can refer to just all of God's law, God's instruction. So if you read through um, the Psalms, as we are wont to do in this, in this church, um, we come across especially Psalms like Psalm 119 that just goes on and on about how sweet and how delightful God's law is. Um, and so what are, what are they saying? On the one hand, yes, they're talking about the books of the Pentateuch, the actual words on the page or on the scroll. But on the other hand, they're, again, they're getting at something else, this notion of instruction. Um, and this is, I think, helpful for us to just pause for a moment and think about, because in our context, what are the different connotations of the word law? When you hear law, what kinds of things do you think of? What's that? Deliberation, yes. So, so say more. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, there's a, there's a back and forth with law. In just our sort of normal, uh, everyday American context, what are some ways that, other ways in which we use, we use law? There's a sort of deliberative aspect of that. What else? The police. Yeah, right. You think of, you think of uh, when you think of the law, I almost inevitably think of breaking the law. <laughs> um, and, that, and that there are people whose 
whose job it is to enforce that law. Um, so what are, you know, what are some laws that we might potentially break? Speeding, we're all, <laughs> we're all in a hurry to get places, right? What other kinds of laws do we encounter? Tax evasion, yes. Jaywalking, yeah. <laughs> Insider trading, we clearly, yeah, we could say a lot about our, our life as uh, by what kind of laws that we, laws we think of. Um, yeah, so we have, we have these laws, um, we, and we think of these are, um, where, where do these laws come from? When you think of where these laws come from, what is the, the authority of these laws? Government, right? People who we either sort of like or really don't like, you know? <laughs> Those in power, right? There's some association with power, and that goes back to the comment about police. Like, there's a there's an ex, uh, the, the ability to enforce laws. Like, a law has power, both from the the authority from which it's given, proclaimed, uh, but also its ability to be, you know, uh, exacted, <laughs> right? Um, so there's there's um, language of a threat, punishment, right? All these sorts of things. Um, do you think when you think of these laws about speeding and tax, eva- uh, tax evasion and, and jaywalking, do you like, you know, would you make a list of those, whether there's 10 or 613, and you're like, oh, the law is as sweet as honey to my lips. Let me meditate on these laws day and night. I think it is when you start Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Your life is literally depends on it. Yes. But even that, though, doesn't quite generate that sort of, the, the sort of sense of desire that the Psalms speak of the law. There, there is that sort of, because it's not only life-threatening in, this, in, the, in the ancient context, it's also life-giving, right? This is the source of life. And that's what I want to get at. So, when we, so what, I'm, what I'm trying to frame here is here we are, living in Waco, Texas, the heart of culture, right? And the heart of civilization. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm from North Carolina. Um, what, uh, but what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is we come to the text. We come to the faith. We come to this Christian way of life with these assumptions. When we hear the word law, most of us are not, uh, as schooled in the, the Christian way of life as we'd like to be. We come to, the, we come to this, we have a lot of assumptions about what law means, right? Jaywalking, tax evasion, and these sorts of things. So when we read law in this setting, we are not likely going to be thinking 
of this kind of life and death, this kind of, co- it's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in terms of covenant, right? That's another way of getting at this, the deliberation between God and, God and Israel. But we're, we're especially not used to thinking of law in terms of what this is summarizing, Torah, instruction. This sense that um, by meditating on, by dwelling on, by contemplating, by savoring God's law, there is life, there is goodness, there is bounty, blessings, there is um, uh, a peace which passes understanding. We tend not to think of law in those categories. We may have other words that, w- that we associate with that. But in order to, to get into the, the biblical imagination, one of the things that we'll have to shift is our conception of, of law. And just be aware, at least, for this point, all we're trying to, all we're trying to accomplish um, in this setting is be aware, here are certain presuppositions that our culture gives us about what law is. Do this or you will go to jail. <laughs> um, and, you know, why is the speed limit 25 miles per hour here? That makes no sense, right? right? We'll bring those kind of assumptions. And then if we bring that assumption to the Ten Commandments, say, or, or other biblical texts that talk about the law, we are apt to be confused or wondering there's some kind of disjunction there. So all that we want to do at this point is just note cultural presuppositions about law, biblical conceptions of law. We're a little more familiar with these, even if we don't articulate them all the time. What we want to do is sort of learn to inhabit this, uh, a more biblical conception of, of law. So, um, and, so again, as this says, it's God's direct pronouncement of his will, a pronouncement of God's will, both for our good and God's glory. So um, law is, if the Ten Commandments are a summary of the law, if we get at closer to, well, what is God's law? We're going to get closer to something like God's will. Um, and it's interesting here, we've talked about will already uh, with uh, the Lord's Prayer. Right? and asking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here we're, we're returning to this notion of well, what is God's will? And again, it's not just some arbitrary thing. God says, well, I demand that you not drive 25 miles per hour here because, well, that's just a number that I came up with. Right? God's will is um, uh, God's instruction, God's, it's a revelation really of God's being. What we're going to get to eventually is to say that God's will, what does St. Paul say that the will and power of God is? Christ. Christ is the will of God, right? That's the fullness of of what we see uh, in terms of God's will. And that's what we're ultimately going to be setting our sights on. We're thinking about, well, what is God's law? What is God's will? Our, our gaze is going to be directed towards, towards Christ. Um, which is something that, as, again, as we learned in prayer, God's will, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a way of getting, is a way of, is for our good. For our good and God's glory. Okay. Let's go back to Moses. Question 259. When did God give his law? 
After delivering his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, God established a covenant with them by giving them his law through Moses. So again, we touched on this, this briefly. This comes directly after God's amazing salvation, the exodus from Egypt. God's delivering his people from slavery. And so, what does he do in that situation? Here is freedom from captivity. Go do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you feel good. Just don't hurt anybody else. Is that what God says? No. <laughs> Here is God's law. I'm giving you this. You've been freed from slavery, right? Freedom is not just you know, the ability to not have anybody tell you what you can and can't do. True freedom here, true liberty, implies living in accordance with God's will. So there's this sense of, uh, so what, what, what this is getting at is this saying that God's law um, comes out of a place of God's deliverance from Israel. It's a, it's a movement of grace. You've been saved, essentially, by grace. You've been redeemed from captivity. God's law is a way of living into that liberty. God's law is the shape of liberty, you could say. This is what it means to live freely as God's people, to live in accordance with God's way of being. Um, so you'll notice that the way that this, that even our, our um, the, the commandments are, are set up. Number one is not just, you shall have no other gods but me, but I am the Lord your God. And in the text, in the scriptures, it's often, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? In what way is that a command? It's a, it's a command because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a statement. It's a, it's a, it comes out of this ontological reality. God has set you free. God has uh, delivered the captives um, and says, this is what uh, true liberty looks like. Okay, so it comes out of this, um, this movement of grace. You know, the law is, is based upon God's, God's uh, redemption of Israel. And then so he establishes a covenant with them. And this is key biblical language, as we were talking about earlier. It implies this back and forth. I will be your God, um, and you will be my people. There's this covenantal relationship. Not that, so there, God is absolutely the divine lawgiver in this scenario. Let's be clear about that. But he is such, God is a lawgiver who is in relationship with his people as one who redeems them, for one. He is a, is a redeemer. He is a, you know, he's pictured in, in, in these texts as one who is a, a mighty king, right? More powerful than Pharaoh. Uh, Peter Lightheart talks about this uh, as God, uh, I Egypt, Pharaoh, has enslaved God's son, right? And so God redeems his son from slavery. So this is, God is the redeemer, but he's also a father to Israel. He has taken back from captivity his own son, right? Right? Uh, so these are addressed as, as, um, 
Again, in the language of Proverbs, it's father-son language. This is a language about, in our family, this is what, this is what it means to live as a part of God's family. So there's law as a part of that, but what's the context? The context is redemption and family. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've got... Um, um, very much this language. I think the the jealous uh, God is a God is a jealous God can be understood. Again, the the metaphors of Scripture are, are are polyvalent here. I think there's one. There's the bride bridegroom image of that. Right? Israel is 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 God's bride, and He doesn't want them to be off with some other some other guy. Right? <laughs> uh, at the same time, I think you could say that there's the the father son language works for that jealous, you know, jealous God kind of language, right? It's this, this sense of um, there's covenant within these bounds, whether that's the, the vows of marriage or um, the vows uh, of family. There's this sense that covenant law is this, a lang- this is giving you guiding language that helps foster love, Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you'll get taken off into captivity. You'll be destroyed, right? It's and that's that it's for your this is for your good. Like Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yes. We're gonna push it and see, well maybe I can go ten miles over. You know? Yeah. Yes. Because there's, a, you're, I think that's a that's a great point. There is a, um, again, we think of laws just in the sort of external sense. You know, what can I do without getting into trouble? But the spirit of the law is, I think, this is what you're, what you're getting at, is that there's a there's a heart dimension to that as well. Like God doesn't want people just to obey the law in a sort of begrudging you know, way that we're trying just to get away with stuff. God wants a, a lover. So God wants someone to return that covenantal love uh, in relation. And so the law is, is guiding us towards that, that kind of love. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Okay, let's turn to um, question 260. Question 260, how did Jesus summarize God's law? Jesus summarized God's law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You'll notice that through most of the Christian year at Christ Church, this is what 
the priest says at the beginning of the service. They say, they, they give the, Jesus' summary of the law in these two commandments. Love of God and love of neighbor. Um, and these are a summary, Jesus' summary of God's law. And they're also, in some ways, a summary of the Ten Commandments. So the commandments, eight out of ten, at least, are framed in terms of you shall not. <laughs> shall not do this, shall not do that. Remember the Sabbath and honor your father and mother are the, are the exceptions to this. Jesus' commandments are, or Jesus' summary of the law is given in uh, positive language. You shall, not you shall not. So love of God and love of neighbor are Jesus' summary of God's law, which is summarized differently in the Ten Commandments. Right? We have, now we have these two different mutually relating summaries. So the Ten Commandments are, is, one, is one summary of God's law, which we've hinted at as Christ, you know, God's law as Christ. But then Jesus also gives us his summary of this, which is the law is summed up in love of God and love of neighbor. And this is, I think, what we were getting at earlier. What's the point of law? What is the law pointing to? It's guiding us to these two things, love of God and love of neighbor. And you and different people throughout the tradition have tried to you know, divvy up the Ten Commandments, you know, which ones are talking about love of God and, uh, and love of neighbor, right? Um, so the first three at least, or you could say, but one could argue that four and five also have to do with this love of God. Um, and then six through ten say maybe have to do with love of neighbor. In some sense, there's this, even within the ten, there's a kind of twofold way of organizing the Ten Commandments that uh, can be encapsulated in love of God and love of neighbor. So again, different people have, have divvied up those in terms of that, but there's this general agreement that one reads the Ten Commandments in light of Jesus' summary of the law and love of God and, and neighbor. Yeah? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we give you the, the grizzle and say, here, come to, come to Christianity, it's great, yeah, yes, yeah, so that's right, so we want to um, return to the fullness of the law, what is, and this is, this is again why we're framing this discussion of the Ten Commandments in terms of becoming like Christ, 
right? Becoming, becoming human, becoming the fullness of what it means to be human in the light of Christ, right? And the, and the commandments give us this way of life by reading them in, in their fullness within the Old Testament context or within the whole canon of Scripture, really. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so there's this covenantal relationship uh, within that. Uh, but then we also realize as we, as we read throughout Scripture that Israel has, has a real hard time keeping uh, this, these commandments, keeping up the covenant, right? So let's turn to two, question 261. How did Jesus fulfill God's law? For our sake, Jesus fulfilled God's law by teaching it perfectly, submitting to it wholly, and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our disobedience. So there's three aspects of this that the catechism is pointing us to. Jesus teaches God's law. Right? He's a teacher. Uh, throughout, you know, we see this especially in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say it unto you. And people say, how, did, how does this guy get the what? Authority to teach in this way. And so they see Jesus not only just interpreting God's law and saying, here's my way of understanding it. It's better than Rabbi Himmel over there. He's saying, this is, Jesus is proclaiming God's law in a way that is a kind of, the way in which Moses proclaimed the law. So Moses if, is the one who gives Israel the law. This is Jesus doing a new Moses kind of thing. He is a teacher like they've never seen. And because he's doing it, speaking um, with the sort of full authority of God. So, so um, Jesus teaches God's law. He submits to God's law wholly. He does all of the things that the law says to do um, and submits to, to the law wholly, lives it out perfectly. And then finally, by Jesus fulfills God's law by dying as an atoning sacrifice for our disobedience, right? So we realize that it's not only Israel, but all of us that are part of this, not able to, to keep the, the covenant with God. But through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, through his death on the cross, Jesus is, as both fully human, the one who... Um, lives out God's law fully, and then through his death allows us, who are disobedient to the law, to, to live into God's law, to share in Christ's fulfillment of the law. And so this is, this is what we get into in the next question, question 262. How can you... Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about some of the the ways in which why we can't keep the law, 
And so what that in effect does, right, this is a way in which the law reveals our, our shortcomings, right? Paul talked about before the law, we didn't know how we, we couldn't keep God's law, but part of the revelation of God's law is to realize our you know, desperate need of, of Christ and then pointing us to the way in which Christ fulfills the law through his, his atoning death, and that's absolutely right. That um, uh, Romans 8 is just excellent on this. Um, and, uh, and so we're shown how the law both reveals our sin, how Christ fulfills the law, and then also how we are then invited in that, right? How we are, we are called into Christ's fulfillment of the law. Um, so yeah, so question 262. How can you obey God's law? As I trust in Jesus's fulfillment of the law for me and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, God grants me grace to love and obey his law. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and we're still left, we're still left with a question that voice. Jesus dies, fulfills the law, and we're all like, great, that's wonderful, Jesus. Questions remain. Do I just then say, Christ died uh, for, for my sins, um, therefore there's no more need for me to keep the law? Or, <laughs> Christ died uh, perfectly fulfilling the laws and atoning sacrifice. Therefore, I am invited in to live in Christ's fulfillment of the law. And this is what this, this question is pointing to. As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law for me, right? that's the central thing, Jesus fulfills the law. As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the other key aspect of this. How do we live according to Christ's law? Yes, we trust, but trust isn't just something that we do by ourselves because we're so awesome. We trust in God's fulfillment of the law by the very power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us in baptism. So the power of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to trust in God's law and to live in accordance with its teachings. And in this is simply what Christians use in this huge but, you know, wild term, grace. God's grace is God's spirit dwelling in us and enabling and acting, um, energizing uh, Christians to live out the, the, the teachings of God's law, to dwell, to, to meditate, to love, to savor the law, and then to live in accordance with it. So God grants me grace to love and obey his law. It's God's grace that allows us to, to pray, this, pray psalms like Psalm 119 honestly and say, oh, this is, this is good. God's law is good. It is life. It is, it is sweeter than honey, right? So the power of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to, to live into and to, to love God's law. Um, so again, o obeying God's law, again, if we're thinking in, in terms of how we often think about law, which is, you know, uh, tax evasion and, and speed limits and jaywalking, <laughs> right? Uh, we're not savoring that. We're not asking for the power of God's grace to live out those laws. But 
God's law, living in accordance with um, God's law as revealed in Scripture, savoring, meditating, loving that law, this is what happens through the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Martin Martin Luther has this great line about um the about the catechism. He you know he writes a small catechism for kids and a larger catechism. For adults, and he says in the large catechism, may we never become so prideful that we that we think we don't need to return ever to to the foundations. And so that's exactly what this is. We're laying a foundation, um, and there's a sense in which you know Paul says, "Don't re- go back needing a foundation again." But but the the point there is never get get beyond the, the foundation. Right? The foundation is crucial, and if you lose that foundation. Then you go into we go into all sorts of crazy directions. Absolutely. Let's keep um, keep going here. Question two sixty three. So question two sixty two was how can you obey God's law? Power of the Spirit. Question two sixty three. Why are you not able to do this perfectly? Sin has corrupted human nature, inclining me to resist God, to ignore His will and to care more for myself than for my neighbors. However, God has begun and will continue his transforming work in me and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. So we are in this covenantal relationship through Christ by the power of the Spirit to keep the law, and yet we still find ourselves unable to to keep the law on our own. And this is a more, uh, again, as, as we've, we've talked about throughout the year, uh, one of the ways in which we are, you know, defined by living in the time between the times, right? In the time in which Christ has come, Christ has risen from the dead, he's sent the Holy Spirit to empower our lives, and yet there is a fullness that awaits, right? And we live in between these times, what's called what this refers to as as the end of the age, when Christ returns again um, to make all things complete and to to destroy death once and for all. But because of the the corrupting nature of sin, what does what does sin actually do? What does it corrupt? It corrupts two things: love of God, love of neighbor. Instead of loving God, we love anything except God, right? And instead of loving our neighbor, we care more for for ourselves and for our neighbors. So again, God has begun this work, and God will complete this work. Uh, And so we live, because we live in this state, this time in between the times, um, it's what Augustine called, simply just called the seculum, right? This age, this age, um, that we live in in this place. Okay, 
Question 264, how should you understand the Ten Commandments? I should understand them as God's righteous rules for life in his kingdom, basic standards for loving God and my neighbor. In holding them, I bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and his will for a just society. So we should understand them as God's righteous rules for life in his kingdom. These are the ways in which, again, as we said, God rescues his people, not just to say, all right, peace out, have a great life, do whatever you want. He says, no, I've, I've saved you, I've redeemed you in order to live in my kingdom. This is, we're part of God's project now. We're not our self-made projects. We are part of God's project, and God's project is restoring his kingdom, bringing about the kingdom that he set out to establish in creation. So in God's kingdom, this is what it looks like to live as citizens of this kingdom. Every society has rules. Every society has its, its guidelines, its, um, its boundaries. Um, even when, when, you know, as in our culture, we say, you know, uh, we pretend like we don't have any, you know, you, you can choose your own way of life as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. You know, we, we try to say, one of the confusing thing, most confusing things about living in, in, our, in America today is that we have so many people um, proclaiming as a rule that there are no rules, <laughs> right? So we live in this sort of very confusing time, but for most people, are, I have a clear understanding that every ordered society has rules, has guidelines, and that these are for life, right? These are for the life, the well-being of its, of its citizens, of its people, and um, we can leave that to fallen human beings to, to create rules that we hopefully try to approximate God's, God's laws. But what we have in uh, God's law, God's, the Ten Commandments, are um, rules for righteous living in God's kingdom, standards for loving God and, and neighbor. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love one's neighbor? We need, we need some help figuring this out. Otherwise, we are liable to say, oh, I, I love God by, uh, you know, sleeping in on Sundays and, you know, and, and enjoying, you know, eating pancakes, right? That's the way I love God, right? No, we need some guidelines for, for what it actually means to love God and, and love neighbor, right? Um, we need some help. And, and this is what the Ten Commandments do. So in them, we also, we bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and his will for a just society. Again, getting back to this language, God's law as God's will. What does this look like? Here are the foundations. Here are the standards for what it looks like for a just society, a righteous society, a kingdom society to live in accordance with God's law. Question 265. How do the Ten Commandments help you to resist evil? They teach me that God judges the corrupt affections of this fallen world, the cruel strategies of the devil, and the sinful desires of my own heart, and they teach me to renounce them. So this is one aspect of what the Ten Commandments do. They point out what actually are 
the corrupt affections of this fallen world. They point us to what, what those are. Making idols, um, working every day of the week, dishonoring one's parents, murdering, adultery, stealing, lying, coveting. The law helps us by first pointing out what, the, what are the corrupt affections of, of a fallen age. Living in a fallen world, one of, the, one of the fun things about being fallen humans is that you don't know that you're fallen, <laughs> and, and you don't know in that state what corrupt affections are, right? You think that what are actually corrupt affections, you think are just good, normal, true, your, your, your desires, right? Again, one of the creeds of, a, of the non, non-Christian world is that your desires are sacred, your affections are sacred, and you should live out them, you should express them in any way that you so choose, right? This is dog, basically dogma <laughs> for a secular age. What this is saying is that we don't know our corrupt affections, and this is pointing us out. The Ten Commandments are elucidating, bringing to light what are corrupt affections. Um, and then they teach us to renounce them. So they show us, there. It's, it's shining a light, if you will, on what corrupt affections are. Not loving God, not loving neighbor. They're expressed in these ten ways, especially. And then, the, so the Ten Commandments illuminate these and say, here are corrupt affections. Renounce them. <laughs> And that's what we do at baptism, yes? We renounce the devil uh, and all his, all his pomp, all right? And then we turn from them. Okay, question 266. How do the Ten Commandments help you grow in likeness to Christ? They reveal my sin in light of God's righteousness, guide me to Christ, and teach me what is pleasing to God. So again, this is building on this last question. So on the one hand, the Ten Commandments shine a light on corrupt affections. And not only just in general, but they reveal my own corrupt affections. They shine, they reveal my sin. Um, And just as a point of historical fact, the Ten Commandments, you don't see them a whole lot in the patristic era. You see them emerge more in the medieval the medieval church. And one of the ways that they are commonly used and the way in which they are still used as, is as a guide to confession. So confessors, you know, when you go, when you are preparing to make confession, one of the things they would use is, you know, say, here's the Ten Commandments, go through them, <laughs> and let them reveal your sin so you know what to, what to confess. Otherwise, you get up there and say, I... You know, I ate too many Doritos last week, you know, and, and, you, and you, you know, you, again, you think that's your, that's your corrupt affections. By going through the, t- the Ten Commandments, one of the things they do, one of the uses is as shining a light, revealing part of your sin. But they not only do that, they guide me to Christ, right? So they point us to Christ. Again, we'll be talking throughout this whole section as Christ as the perfect image of God's will, and, and so God's law. So the, the Ten Commandments point us to Christ. They are, they're like a lens, a frame that, that shape our vision. They point us to Christ. 
and then they teach what is pleasing to God. Again, sin corrupts us. It creates this distance between God. We don't know what is pleasing to God, um, and we don't even want to be pleasing to God, but even if we did, we wouldn't know what that looks like. But the Ten Commandments point us to what is pleasing to God. Uh, And then so finally, 267, how should you keep the Ten Commandments? Because they could both contain God's prohibitions against evil and direct me toward his goodwill, I should both repent when I disobey them and seek by his grace to live according to them. So again, we have this twofold movement of, we have, on the one hand, prohibitions. Don't do this, don't do this. They reveal our disordered affections, but then on the, and so we repent of them, and on the other hand, they point us towards Christ. They show us that there is, there's a fullness of life in Christ. This uh, became one of the big, uh, big issues uh, after the Reformation, for Martin Luther, uh, for instance, the law was primarily something that pointed out your sin and showed your absolute need for grace, right? So the law has this function of saying, you are terrible. <laughs> you can't do this. Um, I was going to use some, some worse language, but you know, you, you're not good at this. And so you need Christ, right? And then that's where grace comes in. And he was... And, and so for Luther, it's a little more unclear what actual positive function that the law has, uh, what the Ten Commandments have. Um, but for most other reformers, and then for the Anglican tradition, they saw the law as both pointing out sin, but also pointing us towards Christ. They show us, they sketch, they picture, they help us see what it looks like to live a holy life, to live a righteous life before God. So this is, today this work has been sort of um, introduction. What is the basis of the law? What is, what is the law? Um, and then what sort of function does it play in the Christian life? Um, and then so in the, in the coming weeks, we'll be walking through each, each of the commandments and seeing them as, as a framework for what it means to both Um, unveil our disordered affections and also point us towards life in Christ to show us what it looks like to become like Christ, to grow into Christ's image. Um, Questions at that level before we we close. I'll be with you guys the next couple weeks and then uh, Father Nicholas will be back uh, towards towards the end of the month. Um, But I'm looking forward to walking through these together. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for showing us uh, your law, for revealing your law to us. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit uh, to let us live according to your law. And we thank you above all for Christ who teaches us, shows us, and and atones for uh, for us um, that we may live and reflect your image and glory. I pray for each one here uh, that in the weeks ahead your spirit would reveal to them their own disordered affections that they may repent and turn towards fullness of life in you, living in accordance with your law imaged in Christ. pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right.
We'll begin in just a few minutes.